we we started uh, mapping the position and the number of ground stations uh, in the high north and northern europe and we we were surprised by the the number of new ground stations especially in finland and uh, norway that uh, are extremely close to the border with russia where russia has uh, its best uh, uh, electronic uh, warfare capabilities so we were curious to understand what's what's go, what's going on uh, From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, welcome back. This week's episode and the next is all about what rarely comes to mind when we talk about space the ground. Fiery launches are like beacons showing us the way off our planet. They have their own mystique, and many on the defense side know that the satellites those rockets are taking up to orbit, the technologies on board allow the U.S. and its allies to project power globally. That mental picture of satellites is less clear, but we know they're up there. Sending and receiving command and control communications, gathering geospatial intelligence, making Zoom meetings and cloud classified video teleconferences between combatant commands possible, and a lot more. The list is very long. But here's the thing. Those signals, which can be rammed with oodles of critical classified data like gathered raw intelligence or commands sent to satellites and military drones, they have to originate from somewhere, and they have to be received and relayed quickly and securely. That's where the ground segment comes in. I'm not talking about the handheld devices like sat phones. In this episode, we're focusing on the big, massive, building-sized satellite dishes in the high north. That's in or near the Arctic Circle. And possibly, to our folly, we rarely think about them. And that's in spite of their strategic importance. Like, who owns and operates them? Many of them are commercial. How about their location? Their cybersecurity? What's connected to them? And are they hardened against electronic or physical attacks? To get that picture of the ground segment and what the U.S., its allies, and its adversaries are doing up in the high north, we've got Greg Falco and Nicolo Bocchetti. Both of them are researchers at the Johns Hopkins University Institute for Assured Autonomy in Baltimore, Maryland. Here's our conversation. Hi, Greg. Nicolo, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having us, Laura. Very happy to be here. Thank you. As many of the Downlink listeners know, we do things a little differently. I'd like it if you would take a minute and introduce yourselves, your institution, and what you're working on now. And Greg, as you are the professor, why don't you start? Sure. Yeah, again, really happy to be here. Um, my name is Gregory Falco. I'm an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University, uh, and at, I'm based at our Institute for Assured Autonomy, um, which is a joint collaboration between the Whiting School of Engineering here at Johns Hopkins and the Applied Physics Lab, uh, which is a university-affiliated research and development center. Um, and so the work that we do uh, at Johns Hopkins is at my lab. It's called the Aerospace Adversary, uh, and we build and uh, break autonomous and resilient space systems. And so our job is to try and build out new space technology that adversaries can't break as easily uh, because we're going to break them first. 
That actually sounds like loads of fun. I've got to drive up the road and go visit you. You're welcome and, anytime. <laughs> and Nicolo, tell us about you. Uh, I am a PhD student in civil and systems engineering and Professor Falco is my advisor and my research focuses on the security of ground station networks mostly ground station as a service and uh, like uh, everything that uh, tries to connect us with our satellites in orbit. Yeah, at the top of the podcast, I've already clued in our audience to where the high north is and that the region is strategically important to the US, NATO, Russia, and China. The space component of great power competition in the high north, however, is not so well understood. And I have to admit that even when I create a mental picture of satellites and orbits and the ground stations, I also miss the high north. So, Greg, what is the picture that we should all have in our minds about what's going on in the high north? Set the table for us. Sure. So so the high north is really about uh, things around the Arctic uh, and usually around Scandinavian countries in the, in the Nordic region. Um, and these areas are very important from a space component because if you want to do something in polar Earth orbit, and what you would like to do in polar Earth orbit usually is intelligence gathering satellites or, or Earth observing imagery satellites, uh, you need to launch from these Nordic regions, these, these high North regions. And so this is a very important area from a launch standpoint, but also from a communication standpoint. And if you're not actually able to have communication access there, you have a lot of challenges being able to do a downlink for some of these very critical intelligence missions. And Nicolo, also what I don't think is widely understood is that many NATO members, their ministries of defense, including the U.S. Department of Defense, you know, to what extent do they really rely on commercial ground stations in the high north to transmit and receive satellite signals that are carrying a variety of classified data? I mean, can you quantify the scope? And then why are ground stations in the high north at once very particular and perhaps essential for national and regional security? Well, uh, there is a, a growing trend of uh, reliance of uh, military institutions and security institutions from NATO countries on commercial uh, services because uh, the number of satellites in orbit is growing. Most of them are commercial. And uh, to connect uh, this uh, huge number of satellites to the ground, uh, you need a huge number of uh, ground stations that nowadays uh, is mostly commercial. So. The downlink of uh, very important and very secret uh, data is passing through commercial antennas and uh, commercial uh, data centers. So, and with the war in Ukraine, we saw how private uh, companies are becoming even more important for the conduction of uh, intelligence operation during a war. We saw it with ISI or Maxar. So the reliance of NATO countries on uh, commercial services in space uh, and for space is uh, growing. And of course, uh, as uh, Greg was saying, like in the high north, uh, you need antennas to downlink uh, quickly informations, especially in polar orbit, and uh, is uh, particular tricky, particularly tricky, that area, because uh, its strategic importance is growing. Uh, Russia and China are even more interested now than before, because uh, with the rising of the temperature, it's possible to navigate better there. So there is growing interest. And of course, also NATO countries are trying to maintain their strategic position there. So the tension is growing in the area, and this uh, reflects also on uh, ground stations. 
Nicolo, this is your paper. You know, what inspired you to examine space infrastructure in the high north? And in your research, which I know was gathered through open source intelligence platforms, you know, what did you find? Did anything surprise you? Well, like uh, we decided to write uh, this paper uh, for the reasons that we just said, like basically we are witnessing this uh, growing importance of the area. Uh, we are living uh, in a period of uh, changing in uh, the international uh, landscape. The war in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, the adhesion to NATO of Sweden and Finland. So like uh, you have uh, in that area a completely changing security landscape. And so we we started uh, mapping the position and the number of ground stations uh, in the high north and northern europe and we we were surprised by the the number of new ground stations especially in finland and uh, norway that uh, are extremely close to the border with russia where russia has uh, its best uh, uh, electronic uh, warfare capabilities so we were curious to understand what's what's go, was going on, uh, and uh, we witnessed uh, like a, a very interesting situation. And if I may may add to that, on a, on a more personal note, uh, Nicola and I both lived in Iceland for a good period of time, and we we researched and studied their space sector there, and worked directly with some of their government officials uh, to understand what their perspective on the security posture of that landscape looked like. And in a very concerning way, we found that. There wasn't much thought about what was going on with relation to their space security posture uh, that was happening in both their own domicile in, in Iceland proper, uh, but also in their neighboring Scandinavian countries. They just weren't really thinking uh, in a concerted way about the security of that space infrastructure. And so very problematic. We saw firsthand <laughs> uh, how they were handling some of that. And so we wanted to try and shed some more light on some of the challenges, especially as Nicolo described um, in relation to the the, the current uh, conflict. Well, it's sort of interesting. That's, you know, sort of roll back the tape a, a bit. You know, you say that the, the the situation in the high north is changing, right? What is changing? If you could just sort of explain that for, for our listeners. It's changing because uh, like, uh, uh, as we were saying, like the, the high north, uh, the northern Atlantic, uh, uh, they are. They have always been important from a strategic point of view between Greenland, the UK, and Norway and Iceland. Like it was a, a place of confrontation between NATO submarines and Russian submarines. It has always been that. But now, with the the warming of the climate in the high north, is becoming from a commercial point of view extremely important because you can ship much more vessels there. In fact, Russia is investing in the Northern Sea route. And also the U.S. and NATO are trying to have better connectivity, better infrastructures there. So this is changing a lot because uh, for both uh, Russia, U.S. and also China that is investing in the area means a lot of money and a lot of uh, future future commercial uh, benefits. In And China is also becoming a bit more active as well. I mean, I read in your paper and and was also surprised when i was looking at the map in your paper that china has ground stations but that they're also looking at shipping through the high north and as you said sort of having a high north silk road can you explain that a little bit as well basically uh, you know china in the last years has tried to through bilateral multilateral agreements to create the new silk road 
so like uh, foster better uh, commercial routes and uh, connections with all the Central Asia, India, Southern Asian countries to reach uh, Europe. So better commerce. Now, of course, like Russia is fostering a Northern Sea route, China, that is one of the most important commercial partners of Russia, is trying to have also an Arctic version of the, the, the Silk Road. That is basically the same of the Northern Sea route, but of course, probably Russia and China will try to cooperate to have better infrastructures in the area and so have a more redundant way of commerce with Europe and the rest of the world. And to follow on with what you were saying, Greg, that when you were both there in Iceland and and you were just initially looking into this, that you found that there wasn't really a huge amount of thought being put into the security of ground stations or the placement of ground stations, which plays right into the question that I've been thinking of asking you, because like space, and I hate to say it this way, but like space, the high north suffers from out of sight and out of mind, right? You know, and yet the threats to U.S. security to the NATO allies are are pretty real. So, when you were looking at you know the lack of thought, what is it that the leaders in the high north that NATO um, should be looking at? You know, what is it they're you know not really digging into as well as perhaps maybe they should? Uh, they have to follow the money, and I think that the big issue right now is there's a lot of less regulated investment that's happening from foreign uh, countries that may have specific interests in these regions uh, from an infrastructure standpoint um, that is pseudo welcome at this time. And uh, the to be explicit, uh, you know, from examples from when we were in uh, in Iceland, I was there on a, a Fulbright scholar uh, position. Um, and the nature of some of the work that we were doing was trying to learn more about the importance of that region for trade, but also from an investment standpoint. And China was, uh, frankly, offering to build a lot of infrastructure for free in in Iceland. Um, well, we know but, nothing's for free, not right. really. And that is absolutely correct. And I think that was something that was concerning, uh, just the fact that there were some offers like that. And uh, it's not just about space infrastructure, right? This is happening all over the place uh, in the high north, but also in other European countries uh, relating to very low cost telecommunications infrastructure, right? Like like we've seen with con- uh, contests with Huawei and, and things of that in the, in the past, where we see just almost free or very low cost infrastructure being able to be deployed um, with obvious strategic benefits for those deployers in the future. And so I don't think that right now, uh, these a lot of these countries who are trying to take advantage of some of the phenomenal strategic resources that they have and location that they have, um, they're not really tracking that investment as closely as maybe they should and moderating that investment and trying to understand the intentions of that investment uh, to not say to block all of these different countries from building infrastructure there. But let's think about it more strategically and why they're doing this and and what advantage they're going to pull in the future. I think as an American, we are very cognizant of some of these things. Uh, We're very cautious about uh, some of these types of investments, whereas uh, frankly, in the high north, I think a lot of these regions are very friendly and open to collaborators. And it's a wonderful thing about the culture, very trusting communities, inherently trusting uh, societies. But this is something where we have to have very big red flags going up sometimes when it comes to understanding how that investment's being placed. And in addition to following the money, 
you know, Niccolo, in your paper, you also uh, came up with a threat matrix of a sort, right? You had, uh, you've broken it out by region, by type of threat. Um, why don't you start with the type of threats that ground stations that NATO and the U.S. relies on um, face? Oh, well, uh, like ground stations uh, are physical infrastructures. They are very big antennas uh, with like a control center, a mission control center that are connected to other physical infrastructure that are data centers that uh, are connected through cables or radio frequency systems. And the antennas are connected to space through a link that is a radio frequency link. So like we have many dimensions of risk for such an infrastructure. Of course, we have a physical risk. If you are very close to Russian border, as in case of an armed conflict, of course, it can be destroyed and that's done. But like it's more tricky to analyze the electronic and the cyber threats to those components. For example, and this is specific, especially to the high north, when we are talking about ground stations at the Svalbard Islands or in Iceland or in Greenland, those are connected to the main continent, to the main European continent, through undersea fiber optic cables that uh, can be cut, as we saw some months ago with the North Stream 2 attack on the seabed, an explosion. You can destroy a pipeline, but you can very much easily uh, destroy a fiber optic cable. But you can also divert the communications if you are able to get to those uh, cables. And from a cybersecurity point of view, of course, all those data are passing through data centers. The closer you are to a border, the easier it is to have infiltration or sabotage on your territory. But uh, like, uh, of course, cyber risk is uh, less geographically relevant, uh, but uh, foreground station is extremely important, especially since we were talking about the reliance on commercial services of NATO forces. From that point of view, being able to steal information or like alter those information can be an extremely important point in a war or in a conflict. There's also an important transition point, if I don't mind, if you don't mind it, me interjecting. Um, the transition point is in how Sweden and Finland are uh, candidate members or, or to be joining NATO, right? And as part of that, they have to uh, invest, I think, 1% of their, uh, I think it was 1% of their, 2% of their GDP has to be invested in their NATO military investments and going towards um that big investment is substantial compared to anything that you know Sweden and Finland has have done before and so a lot of what they're going to end up doing probably is looking at their commercial infrastructure that they have in place there which today is quite a bit of space infrastructure right they have a lot of ground stations there that are commercial ground stations and they have um, launch and- capability as well absolutely those launch capabilities are are spectacular uh in uh, especially in in Sweden uh that we're seeing uh the re- the new launch of of S range uh coming up with their launch on the 13th I believe is when they're st- doing their launches again so this is going to be very very important for NATO and that's going to be part of that percentage that they're going to have to allocate to uh to the NATO partnership um they're going to claim that this is some of their investment and I think that as we see this dual use infrastructure emerging in a more substantial way, we're going to see more attacks on the dual-use infrastructure, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think Nikola thought it was such an important area for investigation. Well, there's that, but I mean, are there, you know, are these countries in the high north, just as, as 
you were, you know, explaining in Iceland and in, in Greenland, which by the way, Greenland is not its own country, just for everybody to know. Um, but nevertheless, that for these, for these, you know, different areas and different localities and their governments, I mean, are, are they becoming more aware of how this A could threaten their uh national or regional security? And B, do they understand how it could also um threaten their customers' security. Because if we're thinking about one web, you know, they have a ground station or stations that they go through. We've got Starlink. We've, I mean, you, you lay it out a number of commercial concerns that also serve, you know, have that dual use with defense concerns, but that's money. That's time. That's risk. It's not, it's not just, you know, if you want the money to continue to flow, your customer, your commercial customer has to feel confident that if they're going through your ground station, that they're going to be able to deliver their services uninterrupted. Are, are they thinking about this? We do have contacts in these, these countries and, and these companies who are working on this, and they're very competent. Uh, so I do believe that people are aware of what is going on. Uh, I think the threat is not diminished by the fact that there are very competent people at these organizations uh, who are managing this infrastructure. And there is probably a, and I can't speak personally of knowing what their discourse is right now on this matter, but knowing that there has not been a lot of outward posturing uh, that has gone into some of the discussion of securing these assets, I would say that they're behind the ball a little bit uh, on trying to protect or claiming that they're going to have better protections for their customers and their commercial base as a result of this new partnership with NATO. Uh, I also think that there's a little bit of question going on relating to uh, how relevant these attacks will become on the surrounding area, given um, you know Russia has made outward claims saying they're only interested in Ukraine, but then we also see uh, Nicola mentioned to me this morning uh, how there's been a, a whole bunch of activity uh, north of Norway, right? In the, the you want to talk about that for a moment? Oh, like yeah. basically, like there are uh, many reports from Norway and uh, also in the Finland region about uh, a lot of uh, GPS jamming in the area, like uh, civilian uh, air flights uh, are being uh, disrupted many times. In December and November, they saw uh, like unprecedented uh, levels. So, like. Uh, it's not a conflict, of course, but like we are seeing how like uh, strategic maneuvers in the area and also some policies, strategic policies of Russia related to Ukraine are disrupting satellite communications in the high north. So like we are already seeing that risk. And as they can jam GPS connections and GPS data, they can jam also other downlinks from satellites, not only in those frequencies. That's really interesting you mentioned that because um, I came across a story this morning that was actually from last month. Sorry, I can't read everything exactly when it gets published, but it was December um, December 14th in Foreign Policy. There was a piece about the Capitan Shmilkin, and it's a Russian-flagged missile that, you know, had been in the Black Sea, but was, you know, going somewhere north uh, you know, allegedly, and had just sort of disappeared. But it's a really, really, really big boat. Now, whether or not they turned off their transponder or not, or if this is jamming, you know, I haven't, I'll just be, you know, 
all truth. I haven't read through the entire article, but it, it's it's happening. Um, and then there was Zapid, you know, 2019, where you know the you know the electronic warfare in the high north was pretty well documented with you know flights in Norway being grounded or having to use you know other means to figure out you know where they were and you know whether or not they could land at certain airports. Which, which creates a danger. But here's something that crossed my mind. You know, we all know that Russia and China are getting closer. Definitely Russia is trying to get closer to China, right? And if China has these ground stations that are in the high north, and I just got to ask, it may seem like kind of a dumb question, but why would it be in Russia's interest to jam that neighborhood knowing that their big brother has ground stations there? Wouldn't that kind of disrupt the good and happy relationship? Well, first of all, we don't exactly know what uh, those uh, Chinese ground stations uh, are doing. Like, they are mostly scientific stations. So this is the first point. They, they claim they're mostly scientific stations. Yeah, like, <laughs> they claim that they are scientific. <laughs> <laughs> And then well, that's like, like that's like you know Chinese you know commercial space you know companies claiming that they're simply commercial despite the fact that when they signed up um, for their business license that they made it very clear that they were also giving over the keys to the People's Liberation Army if and when the PLA called upon them. So yeah, okay, I'm there. Keep going. I'm sorry, Nicola. Well, no, Please then I, I was just saying that like jamming is something very easy to start and stop. Like you can switch off and the communication start working again quite easily. Uh, so like you can also cooperate on that. Like yeah, and and honestly, like it's the cost of doing business, right? I think that's also part of it. Um, and we need to acknowledge that. You know, even though your big brother is somewhere, you're gonna do what you need to do, and then you're gonna turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's just going to forget about it the next day. Um, so I think that's that's acknowledged on both sides of that uh, relationship that's going on between Russia and China. All right. So, Nicolo, Greg, what do these, you know, let me put it this way. If the regulation isn't there or the legislation or whatever way that, that it, it's needed to to manage these ground stations isn't quite there at the government level, what is it that the commercial players that are actually owning, running, providing ground um, station as a service, you know, what is it that they should be doing in operating these ground stations, which are so important to so many people? There's not a silver bullet, obviously. Um, and that's something that's obviously prob that's problematic also. <laughs> but uh, one thing that they should be doing is they should be considering uh making sure they have concerted secure cybersecurity teams in place for some of this ground infrastructure. Uh, we all we know that a lot of control systems, including ground stations, uh, do not usually have or do, often do not have security personnel, um, cybersecurity personnel affiliated with them uh, and in all, especially in remote regions. Uh, and sometimes smaller uh, stations are less looked upon than others. And so they just less monitoring, less management, um, so making sure that that is actually part of their these companies' security pipeline uh, is very important, making sure they're not being forgotten about just because maybe they're less used than others uh, or something of that nature. I think that's one step. Another step in the right direction would be to do more of a migration towards uh, hybrid space architectures. And so this is something that uh, you know Nicolo and I and the team are working on in a substantial way right now is to try and define how to do 
uh, diversification of your space infrastructure um, and making sure that you're not using all one type of product or platform at any given time to enable resilience of that infrastructure. And so uh, right now, these companies that are located in the high north, um, and I can't speak personally to all of their systems, uh, but we have some uh, outcoming research in the, in the near future that's going to be describing how they should be moving towards this hybrid architecture, a more heterogeneous ecosystem for how to operate space ground stations. And I think that these companies need to be thinking about that because right now, if something goes down on their system, maybe they have a little bit of redundancy somewhere, but it's not really a fully res robust, resilient network at, at present. So I think that they need to be looking towards that. And they also have to be looking towards uh, engaging with uh, international partners who might be able, might already be experiencing some of these threats and having more open dialogue with regards to how they're operating their space uh, ground stations and making sure that they are following the right practices and procedures. Um, so this is something that we don't have a lot of today. We don't have a lot of international cooperation relating to space security. Um, and we talk about it quite a bit uh, from a policy standpoint, but we don't really have actual mechanisms in place to actually have this discourse in a robust way. So something that we're trying to do as part of our group uh, and as an actual inter international effort is stand up an international space cybersecurity standard uh, with um, an international standards organization or with IEEE. And that way we can facilitate a more robust ecosystem of international cooperation in this area. Right now, we just don't have it. And I think we need to really be moving towards that direction. So tactically, you know, to, to, to summarize, start by just making sure that the ground stations in the high north aren't forgotten about as part of your ecosystem and make sure that, you know, step two, make sure that you're engaging with um, the best practices and pro uh, providers uh, in the area, making sure you're engaging this hybrid space architecture which with diversification of assets and then also uh, dealing with your international community. I think those are the steps we need to take. And I just have a thought. I mean, SES uses so much of the infrastructure up there. And SES also provides, I know for a fact, you know, satellites for secure communications for France and for Italy, for instance, right? And I think also Portugal might be on that or Spain might be on that um, that same um, satellite, which is why we got the whole active defense policy from France, because it one of those SES satellites was sort of being inspected, air quotes, um, by a Russian satellite. So as SES is a Luxembourgian um, company, and I'm just sort of thinking from the commercial side and also from a defense side, because this, this is all done in contracts. Is this something that needs to be written into contracts? Is it written into contracts now? Or is that something that also needs to be looked to in the future as in thou shalt do this, otherwise we will not do business with you? Uh, contracts are a great place to start, but the people who write these contracts don't know much about this topic. <laughs> and so I think this is a, a big challenge, uh, not just for the space community, but anything in cybersecurity is is challenging to write into contracts. We've seen that even just in the US uh, with commercial big tech players, um, having worked in the worked in cyber insurance and, and things of that nature for years, I've seen the sausage get made here and we still don't do contracts well when it comes to instantiating cyber security and security policy into the requirements for uh, engagement commercially. So I think contracts would be great, but you know I don't think it's going to happen uh, anytime soon. Uh, that's where I think that the first step is really to begin more of this international discourse, because honestly, we just don't have the lines of communication that are open right now 
um, between partners and providers. And space is a fully multidisciplinary and multinational community. We're not just building space infrastructure for one country. It's for everyone who's part of our alliances. And therefore, we need to have these open lines of communication, which don't exist right now. Nicolo, Greg, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having us. It was really thank wonderful you. speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting us. It's been fun. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavus Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.